You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and it is that time again where for some reason we end up covering a film yes. for the second release of our of our year. This time it is Glass Onion, which came out at the end of last year. I have watched this so many times. I'm not the sort of person, Herds, that watches films multiple times over, but Ryan Johnson in his second outing with Benoit Blanc made what maybe my favorite movie <laughs> i i don't know if this is my favorite film but i i can see i mean it's a it's a murder mystery so obviously there's a lot of value in going back and watching the film yeah. again to see all the little details you've missed um and the structure of this film as well kind of does its own second trip back mm. folding in on itself which well, is always really fun to watch kind of play out yeah we'll keep it pretty spoiler light uh we're going to avoid major spoilers for the first part of this discussion then we'll get into it a lot more in the back part of the show today so keep an ear out we'll warn you when we're getting further into the spoilers Mm. uh but i guess where i wanted to start herds because we were talking about this just before we came on here oh my goodness is the costuming i it's so good I thought the costuming in this film was just on another level. I love the way that all the costumes reflect the personalities. A standout to me is um, the, the actor Catherine Hahn, uh, character Claire's. <laughs> and I remember I was listening to an interview with her where she was so excited to work with the, the costume designer, Jenny Egan. And, you know, she's looking at all the different costumes and, you know, Birdie has the most colorful ones and, uh, Benoit Blanc has some classy stuff going on too. You know, everybody's got mm. class out the wazoo, but Claire's is drab and depressing. We're really telling a story through the costuming. Like, obviously yeah. that is what costuming in film does, but I felt that it really hit that level of being sufficiently over the top that it fit the tone of what is really a very funny movie. <laughs> Shout out to the the gun down the uh, swim pants. Yes. Like, that is the most- obvious moment mm-hmm. of that like the man doesn't go anywhere without his gun uh it was, it was, <laughs> especially to the ball yeah fantastic i also really enjoy you know talking about dave batista's character duke cody that mm. batista somehow despite trying to be a dramatic actor keeps ending up playing the same sort of typecast of himself but yeah it fits really well into this film yeah he's kind of a uh, an interesting pick because he's like He's like a Twitch streamer, mm-hmm. so he's kind of on the on the tech side of things, much like the um, you know billionaire philanthropist Miles Braun. Mm-hmm. But he is decidedly political. His character is very like right leaning, men's rights kind of character, which is yeah, you know, it's it's a controversial character, and he's he still pulls it off being like like fun. He's like a character you love to hate. Oh, I know. And the the opening scene with his mother just having like already oh. solved the opening puzzle of the film yes. in the background, like not even- Can we- Oh, so good. Let's, let's zero in on that puzzle for a moment because I, I need to say the moment that I realized that this is going to be a wild ride was not the solving of the puzzles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun watching them kind of talk trivia and be like, that's the- the element of silver. That's its its elemental. That's definitely not some crosses. That's all fun to watch people like collaborate and solve a mystery together. But when we cut to Andy Brand, yes, who is the sort of odd one out. Yeah, everyone else is on the phone, kind of talking about how to solve the puzzle together, and we cut to yeah. Andy and a like disheveled what looks like storage yes. unit. And, and everything has been so poppy up until this point. It's been like parties and comedy and laughter and and song and dance. And then Andy is like looking at this box, like angry, 
depressed. It's not clear what her state of mind is exactly, but she just takes a hammer to the thing. (laughs) And whenever you're presented with a murder mystery story where you have a character that is entirely uninterested in the act of solving a puzzle, Mm -hmm. you know you're in for a story that that knows its audience and knows its tropes well. My first impression was that this character was just going to rip the whole mystery apart, Mm -hmm. which- well, yeah, you know. <laughs> I think one of the most exciting things to me is that you and I had definitely discussed since we covered Knives Out on the show, which we really enjoyed, yeah. that I don't think either of us wanted a sequel to Knives Out. And fortunately, it seems like Ryan Johnson agreed. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, we barely get a mention. And the only mention is like so vague and tangential that someone had to point it out to me. It's it's a uh, not to the literal events, but it's it's about a lesson that Benoit Blanc learned yes. while on well in the first movie, and a lesson that the audience learned as well. So it, it resonates, obviously. Yeah, there's obviously the themes that Ryan Johnson likes to play with in terms of the way that he likes to treat wealthy characters as sort of a bit of a punching bag. The way yeah. that even though money as a motivator in murder mystery is typically kind of boring Mm. because he makes it so much about why the characters are interested in that money. It kind of undoes how implicitly disinteresting that theme is. The friends of of Miles Braun who go to the Island, you know, they want it for their government campaigns, their science projects, their celebrity life, their Twitch career. They're all professionals Mm -hmm. in a way, but they all want it for, for different reasons. And you can see that no matter which of them might be the, the killer or whoever you're suspecting at a, at a moment's time, you're going to get very different interactions between the characters and between them and the detective as well. Yeah. I mean, I also really like the way that this film was very funny, but didn't feel like it was kind of a comedy. Yeah. Like it it is so close to that line. I think you definitely could watch this and consider it a comedy, but I really enjoyed that it was very sincere about the character stories it told with some really stupid moments, mm. like compellingly stupid moments. Well, it's very self-aware. You know, it's it's got that element of- uh, <laughs> I can hear you Ugh. hearing the, the understatement in the background. You don't like that term? Is that- is that your reaction? You, if I was to try and argue against you, I would be on shaky ground. Like, it definitely is agree. self-aware in the way that it deals with a lot of its genre tropes. Uh-huh. But there definitely are a bunch of jokes, particularly to do with the celebrity stuff, where it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm interested to unpack that a little bit more, because I'm, I'm definitely thinking of the of the genre of murder mystery and the expectations that, uh, that a, a viewer you know, walks in with. Yeah, I, I think I can agree on that level. I'm more referring to like the the game of Among Us with Stephen Sondheim ah. and Angela Lansbury uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the start of the film. They're, they're all fun. I enjoy them all, but they definitely don't yeah. fit in the same way that all the other self-aware stuff does. I suppose so. I think that it's, I mean, it's only a very short little bit. And as you say, like, when I watched the film the first time, I saw the Among Us and I, I heard Benoit Blanc be like, I'm not very good at these among Us games are much, much better when there are actually like real things. At, real at stakes, stake. yeah. Yeah, because that's that's one of the themes that kind of ties in through the whole story is that he keeps telling people that he doesn't like mm. puzzles and he doesn't like collecting clues and talking to people. He likes danger. So, of course, that begs the question of like, 
then why is he engaging in Miles Braun's detective game if he doesn't like it? Tell you what, though, I, I must confess, having made that point, Daryl as a character, the stoner dude who is just on the island ah. and keeps interjecting, definitely does feel like a bit of a self-aware nod Daryl. to how out of place all the celebrity cameos feel. Yes, yes. In that he he is the, the celebrity cameo that you kind of half expect to do something, <laughs> but he just- it just doesn't. <laughs> it's great. It's really he's, good. He's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed that. I think I think the other thing that was really good about uh, about the cast in this is that like there are a couple of characters, like particularly Lionel, the scientist, and Claire, the politician, mm. who really don't do much in the plot other than kind of yeah. establish who they are and what their relationship is to the more fleshed out characters. It's such an interesting problem for the movie to have because I I completely agree. I think that both characters have a purpose. Mm. Lionel, you know, introduces the whole science angle. He introduces clear to the plot, which is- you know, the, the energy source that uh, that Braun is going to implement, but it's like it's like dangerous and yeah. unstable. And that's kind of the MacGuffin of the story. Um, and Claire, as I sort of foreshadowed earlier, mm. is hilarious. I love the way that she reacts to everything. You know, when violence erupts on the island, her first thought is, oh, I could just see what the papers are going to say about me. You know? Yes, yes. She's not thinking about, oh, no, someone's been murdered. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, the, the public's opinion. Yeah, her years-long friend has died and she's like, oh no, my career. She's pathetic. Mm-hmm. And I I love every moment that we get with her, well, but it is sparse. The thing I like about both Lionel and Claire, and, and this is true for every other character, like Peg as well, mm. who is like oh, yeah, Bertie's assistant, is that even all of the weaker characters, I feel like the movie b- would be weaker for their absence. Like yeah. they are not a strong inclusion but they are a very effectively used weak inclusion. Yeah, I understand. We've we've gotten a bit into the discussion without really talking about the detective, mm-hmm. but like he's he's perfect. Daniel Craig is excellent. His costumes are like <laughs> again, like he's the opposite of sex appeal. Yes, in those in those in those costumes. I don't know about the opposite, but I I will I will support you like, in broad strokes. You know, it's it's a sort of a. Maybe a satirization of the of the Bond role, mm-hmm. where you know he's wandering around shirtless, and you know he's 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 on full display. And in this one, he's not really there to impress people; he's mm-hmm. there to talk to people. Yeah. Well, I suppose we should probably wrap this part of the discussion here and get into the spoilers oh, in the back part of the show. I feel like I've been dancing around them already. I'm very excited for this. I have I have some yarns to to to, to yarn to to Good. weave to to. Sewing. You gonna <laughs> knit a sweater out of that yarn for Chris Evans, maybe? Uh, maybe, maybe. This is Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are talking Glass Onion, directed by Ryan Johnson, starring Daniel Craig and an, an incredible cast. We'll be back with more on your Murder Mystery World Tour in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. While we were talking self-aware, funny murder mysteries, we thought this would be the perfect opportunity to preview our discussion with author Benjamin Stevenson about Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, which is out on the podcast in just a couple of days. 
let's jump over to that and hear from Benjamin Stevenson. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. So last time we had you on the show was just after the release of the book, as I mentioned. It was spoiler light. And since then, you've toured the book through festivals, bookshops, peddling it backstage at comedy shows, presumably months down the line with spoilers on the table. Was a metafiction this absurd a good idea? Uh, I'd have to say yes. I mean, I think that <laughs> people have really enjoyed it and connected with it in a way that I wasn't 100% confident they would, but I just wanted to write something fun and unique. And I think people wanted that. They might not have known they wanted it before they got it. But (laughs) um, no, the response has been amazing. So I'm really pleased. You know, one in 50 people say, God, Ernest is annoying. And I get (laughs) that. But um, yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very pleased with how it's done. So I would say yes, it's was a good idea. And the last thing before we actually get into the spoilers themselves is we touched on the rules of crime fiction alongside the release of Either Side of Midnight in August 2020. And I just wanted to set the record straight. When did Knox first cross your radar? Look, I know you got beef with me on this because I listened to parts one, two, and three of this, <laughs> uh, of Death of the Reader on this book. And I hear you were trashing me um, that <laughs> I heard it first from you. I honestly, I don't sort of, I sort of don't remember. Basically, the way that I have it, is that um, I sat down to write this book and I knew I wanted to follow, have the writer be the the person who was following the, the classics that he loved. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of had that set up. And then I found the rules when I was about 10,000 words in and I was crafting or maybe even less, but I was crafting sort of the narrative and I was thinking, well, what would this guy look up to? Obviously, Christie and Conan yeah. Doyle, but... But what specifically would he look up to? And I just sort of stumbled across them there doing the research for this book once the idea was born. But, you know, maybe it was sitting in the back of my brain and um, <laughs> and, and you lit that fire. Uh, so you, you can have that. I will, I will walk that into any anecdotal conversation I am, I am now allowed to. It was weird of your lawyers to drop by last week. That was weird, but, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, I guess they forgot friendly... to drop the NDA with them. <laughs> it's a little friendly fight, you know, as you do professionally. You've paired the declarative title, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, with the Knox Decalogue, and you explicitly call out the structural challenges you've set yourself for the writing. And you know, if someone dies every chapter or every act, the, the character that you name at the start of the act is the person who has killed someone in that act, that sort of thing. We, we do feel like you're using these stringent technicalities and, and kind of hand-waving the laws you laid out at the beginning. So how do you sleep at night knowing that you've committed the cardinal sin of breaking rules in a murder mystery text? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think the key element is any any good sort of environmental thriller, and by environmental I don't mean like literal environment, I mean unique, structural, uh, high-concept thriller. So well, there's any time travel movie, right? You've got to set your rules for what you're going to do for time travel. But a lot of the enjoyment is using those rules that you've created in this world and re-manipulating them and finding when the characters are in a bind and there is no way out because of the structures that you've put them in, how do they get out of it fairly and enjoyably and then it comes as a surprise. So I think that using the rules in unique ways allows you to restructure your narrative and get to a next level instead of we said this, this, and this would happen, and then they happen and then it ends, um, which sort of has a slightly unsatisfying sort of way about it. 
Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because it reminds me a lot of the way that Michael Robotham talks about writing characters in that he'll write them into a corner that he doesn't think he can get them out of and then challenge himself to get them out of that corner in the same way that you have to set and stretch the rules as far as they will possibly go without breaking to kind of do it in this text, which is a really fun comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the point of this book is to be a modern version of the classic books and Ern sort of laments that modern fiction has sort of taken away what he likes about the golden age mysteries but the truth is that he's writing a modern fiction book so he has to do modern literature influences in there because he's writing it in 2022 so he can't just write the classic because it would be it would be dull it wouldn't hold up so he's sort of he's sort of on both sides of the camp but yeah, I, I think that's that's fantastic from from Robotham. That's that's something that um, a lot of writers do. I suppose yeah. the, the the sort of thing I wanted to to wrap up on is you mentioned before uh, you're working on the next book, and uh, the word on the street and by street, I mean your publisher's website is that it's called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. Were you ever expecting yes. to follow up Everyone in My Family, and how has that process been going? Yeah, it, it's been it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed returning to Ernest. When I finished Everyone in My Family, I I had a synopsis plotted, um, but then once people started reading it um, and really enjoying the characters, then I sort of took that synopsis out of the bottom drawer and thought, right, I'm going to um, this will be my next book, and I want to do it. But it's been really fun. Um, it's been a challenge making it different but similar, which Ernest laments during the book because he <laughs> knows he's writing a sequel and he's like, well, sequels are always rubbish. So he knows that he's sort of got that on his shoulders. Um, and there's bits in the in the book where he's like, oh, well, that happened last time. And, you know, so I'm having good fun with the fact that Ernest knows that he's writing a sequel. I'm, I'm very confident. It. I'm very excited for that. I think I think it's it's earmarked for oct- an October release, if I'm correct. Yes, yes. So uh, I imagine you are quite under the pump, and I'm very excited to finally have that in my hands because, mm. uh, as I've said several times on the show, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone is the most Death of the Reader book we've ever featured on Death of the Reader. So, like, just... <laughs> An, an immense thank you and congratulations for this text. It is so mm-hmm. good to be able to get all the way into the weeds on it with you. Oh, no worries. And it's a pleasure to be um, subject to your wide-ranging knowledge and, um, you know, <laughs> understanding of the genre, which I would suggest outpaces my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, good Ben, luck. thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute treat and we cannot wait to have you back, presumably for everyone on this train as a suspect, but time will tell. Let's do it. Flex and Herds here talking with Benjamin Stevenson about his latest novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. The full version of that will be up wherever you get your podcasts. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Stick around, more to come here on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are talking Glass Onion, directed by Ryan Johnson. It is spoilers time. We are about to get into the weeds, so if you have not seen this film, or if you are spoiler-reverse, it is time for you to turn us down, to disengage from the English language, to go brew a cup of tea for however many minutes are left until the, uh, the, the turn of the nearest half hour, wherever you are. Because uh, I want to get straight into things, Herds, and say that Uh-oh. I thought that this mystery was terrible. 
exactly as easy as it <laughs> needed to be. It's so sure. good how obvious this mystery is. I mean, this film lets you see everything. Yes. It really takes advantage of the visual nature of film mm-hmm. in order to show you clues that you, if you're paying attention, can 100% spot the first time through the film. My favorite example of this there is a scene where we're watching Birdie at the pool yes. and her bag is just out of focus on the chair next to her. Mm-hmm. And we're zooming in on her face and she's talking about how much she hates Miles Braun. Mm-hmm. We're zooming in on her face and the, for a split second, like two frames, there is something that vaguely looks like a phone landing into her bag. And I, I believe it's a, it's a listening device. A dictaphone. Yeah, it's like a tape recorder that is being tossed in. You could 100% after you finish the film, go back and be like, oh, so that's when that recording device was yeah. thrown in. That's when the drinks were switched. That's when, et cetera, et cetera. I love that in moments like that, where you see exactly what's happening, you see the dictaphone flying in, you see mm. things changing hands, you see the gun being grabbed out from Duke's pants. Yep. Like all of it, I guess, ruins the mystery, but it ruins it in a way where the story is so clearly designed to help you enjoy your victory. Yeah. And I love that so much. Yeah, you're rewarded for paying attention, figuring things out. It's it's using that trope and it's using, as I said before, the like visual language of film to obfuscate its clues yeah. while still presenting them in a fair and, and legal way. Well, yeah. I mean, the other one is, of course, there's a cameo from Yo-Yo Ma at Birdie's party at the start where he apparently yes. on green screen, I didn't find this out until later, what? explains the structure of the plot to you. The musical cues the whole way throughout the film where it's dropping in a little fugue line to let you know, like, here is a moment to pay attention to because it's going to come back Mm. again later is so clean. Like, the the film is just viciously (laughs) honest with you. It's just hammering you over the head with these are the moments you should be paying attention to. I will say, and maybe you have a different opinion, but- I I wonder about the fairness of the the twin twist because you know as we all know Knox's rule there mm-hmm. should be no twins unless we're fairly prepared for them and I I know that there are some comments there's a particular one from Claire which she says wow uh, Andy really isn't acting like herself which is a good clue mm-hmm. but I I feel like that particular mystery is not entirely solvable so to speak. I have I have a bit of a case to make. I think generally, like strictly speaking, if we're going by Knox's rules of there must not be twins unless properly foreshadowed, you'd probably fail the mark. Yeah. But there is a bit of a device that we get that sort of that sort of points to this, mm. which I suppose is that every character has a like pairing, which leaves Andy as sort of an outsider in terms of the narrative pairings on the island. So it it sort of implies that there is another character to be introduced there, unless you want to pick Daryl, which I don't think really works. <laughs> I mean, you could also make the case that Andy should be paired with with Miles Braun because mm. you know they were in business together before they split apart. Yeah, I suppose. So, and then Benoit Blanc is the one on the outside because, of course. The, tr- the real twist is that both Andy and Blanc are on the outside. Yeah. So they are paired together as outsiders mm. and Bron is the one on the own, uh, on his own rather, which means he's the killer. Yeah. Like that's, that's the real 
truth to those pairings. But I, I do like your argument. Because the rest of the film is so fair about everything it gives away, and because there are those moments of foreshadowing where they say, oh, she's not acting herself, mm. I really would hold it against you if you held that against the film. Oh. Like I, I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that it is an unfair puzzle to expect to be able to solve, but I think that that lends itself well, almost in exchange for how open the film is about everything else, right? Okay. Yeah, I and mean, I'm happy with that. Not to mention, um, not to mention that scene oh, of Daniel oh. Craig on the apartment balcony as he's coming up with his plan, as he goes, "Oh, well, no, no, that would be ridiculous." Is my favorite moment of performance in the entire film. Daniel Craig is just <laughs> leaning in to that befuddlement so well. Oh, it's so good. Well, I, I actually, I'll tell you what, I really do enjoy how compared to the previous film, Benoit Blanc is more so on the back foot. It's because we get to see more of him, right? Yes. Like in the first Knives Out, the only moments when we really get to see him is when he's totally in control. Yes. As he's he's dealing with the, the protagonist of that film who is completely out of their element, but also not on the side of the detective, you know, even though Andy does have a very similar role as Martha does. Mm. Although I'm going to say it out loud, I think that Martha is a stronger character in that role, but let's not- Let's not get all up in that. Well, yeah, I mean, let's let's quickly let's quickly make this point. Uh -oh. I don't want to dwell on it, but I do want to say I agree with you that I think academically speaking, Knives Out is a better movie. Aha! Uh -huh. Nailed him to I the just, post. I just want that. I just want that out in the field. I enjoy Glass Onion more, and a lot of that is to do with the experiences that I had watching that. That's totally but fine. That's I totally argue fine. that that is a perfectly fair interpretation to have. That's fine. And you can fight me in the comments I if you disagree. Look, nobody needs to fight you. You are entitled to your subjective and wrong opinion. That is entirely- <laughs> <laughs> I'll no, see you in I'm the sorry. comments, guys. <laughs> I'll see you there. No, I, I completely agree, though, that uh, Benoit Blanc is an incredibly strong character in this film because we get to see how his mind works. Yes. I love that we get to see Blanc actually not able to resolve the story. Yes. You know, he has to give the reins to somebody else, someone who has a greater narrative stake and is not beholden to the courts and the judges and the system. Also right? the fact that he gets to do that and still have the detective speech, which Ryan Johnson sure. has managed in both movies without making bit, it feel tacky. Yes, which is a joke in this novel because he's just stalling for time, mm -hmm. uh, for at least in the first half of, of his speech. Let's be clear. He does get his little and also, explanation. He's clearly putting a couple of pieces together as he's mid monologue, yes! which as we discussed during Everyone in My Family has killed someone and a, a bunch of other novels before this is one of my favorite things in murder mystery because i know how good that feels on this show mm. when i'm in the middle of explaining something and a piece falls into place and i go oh oh dear i've <laughs> messed up yeah you like realize what's actually going on you figure out the last piece mm -hmm. um sometimes at the prodding of of your partner in crime <laughs> sometimes at the prodding of the villain some might say yeah you know. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that moment where Blanc, you know, he starts off kind of doing a bit and then it it snowballs into something real and genuine mm -hmm. until Helen can come back with the envelope. 
um, is very human. And listen, I just wanted to say as a fan of the novel that we're not allowed to discuss on this show <laughs> that I really enjoyed the ending of this movie because it felt like a nod to the novel that we're not allowed to discuss on this show. I Look, if Ryan Johnson has read the novel that we're not allowed to discuss on this show, I would be very terrified. Yeah, and it's of- a good thing that we're not allowed to discuss it because otherwise we would spend much too much time uh, debating that exact point. It's true. We would spend too much time on, <laughs> on everything. I think but I think the point yes. that I wanted to conclude on though, Herds, is that obviously we've 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 had a lot of effusive things to say about this movie, but the the thing I guess I'm most excited for is that I am no longer afraid of a follow-up to this. Yeah, yeah. I want to see how he keeps us guessing. Yeah. I, I am sure if this series runs long enough, there will be some bung entries. But I want the bung entries now. Sure. Like it, it cannot ruin how good Knives Out and Glass Onion were for me if there is a bad Benoit Blanc film mm. because I, I know that the series is in hands that uh, feel mostly safe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like how I was talking about everyone in my family has killed someone where, you know, that novel has some strange creative choices that lead to, lead to it like feeling a little bit awkward. Yeah. I think, again, I think that this film has a couple missteps, mm-hmm. a couple characters that I'm like, why are they here? A couple yeah. moments that I think are not foreshadowed. Yeah, really could have done without Serena Williams in this movie. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> She Serena. was the best part. What are you talking about? She was the best part. <laughs> not even the best cameo by a country mile. <laughs> but at the same time, I am excited to see what Ryan Johnson does next with the core formula. Because again, this plot has so many similarities to the previous film, and yet it feels like a very different experience. It's shot completely differently. I want to see what he does next. I want to see what creative risks that we're able to take with a, a different cast and a different locale and even more bizarre. I completely agree. Alrighty. Well, Herds, thank you for joining us here for this discussion of, uh, of Glass Onion. I'm curious though, what's up next? So I have a, a, a question, a, a decision for you to make. So I need you to be prepared. You have a key that opens a safe deposit box. Inside is a bundle of documents, archived research material for a book that has just been published. You must read it all and make a decision. Either replace the documents and the box and throw the key where it will never be found or take everything to the police. Mm. This is a decision that you, Flex, will have to make on air as we read through the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels by Janice Hallett. Yes. Uh, And we're going to be covering chapters just one and two. I sure hope that you enjoy the Antichrist. That's all I can say. Ooh, enticing. (laughs) I'm just going to leave you with that. All righty. This novel is wild. I'm looking forward to it. Chapters one to two of The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels by Janice Hallett next week on the show. Thank you so much for joining us here as we discuss Glass Onion. We will see you then on your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3.